SBS Radio. SBS, a world of difference. You're with NITV Radio, on mobile, online and on radio. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land NITV broadcasts from, the Camaragal people of the Gringai Nation and their elders, past and present. We also acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes and clans we broadcast to. From the mountains to the plains, from the desert to the sea, from freshwater to saltwater. Hello and welcome to NITV Radio. My name is Sharka Pechava and it's my great pleasure being your host today. Coming up in the show, we have an interview by NITV Radio's Bertrand Tungandame about the new guide to support young First Nations people who self-harm. It is now available for families and communities. Bertrand spoke to Professor Padajan about the guide, co-author about the guide. We will also hear a report from Queensland, where the impacts of the climate change are felt every day. We'll hear about the impacts on the Great Barrier Reef, but also a story from NITV's The Point about indigenous rangers who are taking things into their hands. So a lot to look forward to, but first, here are the news for today, Wednesday, May 18th, 2022. Australia Day 1972 saw the first Aboriginal embassy The native title legislation must be amended. And they've walked this land so many times before anybody came. I am sorry. The coalition is facing criticism for refusing to appear on NITV's election special, focusing on indigenous issues ahead of the election. Virgil writer Anita Heath won this year's New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards. And the AFL Adelaide Indigenous leader Wayne Melera has outlined the difficulty in repairing his relationship with Tail Walker after the star forward served a racism ban in 2021. The coalition is facing criticism for refusing to appear on NITV's election special focusing on indigenous issues ahead of the election. The other major parties have put up their most senior indigenous representatives for last night's edition of The Point. But despite dozens of requests, the coalition chose not to attend. Political correspondent Sarah Kolar reports for NITV News. The Shadow Minister for Indigenous Australians, Linda Burney, signed up. So too did Lydia Thorpe, the Green Senator and spokesperson for her party on all things Indigenous. But no one from the coalition, which has been in power for almost a decade, was willing to front for the election special on the point. Shadow Minister for Indigenous Australians, Linda Burney, was at the debate. I think it's absolutely pathetic that the coalition didn't see this as important enough to actually get someone to participate in the debate. It means that First Nations coalition policies won't be pushed under the microscope in the election campaign's final days. Also Lydia Thorpe, Victorian Greens senator, came to the debate. It is disappointing. Uh, I think that we need to show accountability and transparency to our people 
um, and given, you know, we have a minister for Indigenous Australians, yeah, it's a bit disappointing that um, he couldn't make it. It was a point that wasn't lost on the program's hosts. But JP, there's an elephant in the room. We have an empty chair. Um, we made repeated attempts, constant calls and emails, but nobody from the coalition was available to join us. On the campaign trail in Darwin, Scott Morrison was asked about the absence. Um, why won't anyone from the coalition appear on the National Indigenous Broadcast Election Program? We're in Lingiari, it has the highest population of Indigenous Australians. Are these issues not important to you? We're investing $30 million in supporting connectivity, particularly for Indigenous communities right across the country. That's how you close the gap for connectivity for Indigenous Australians. Can someone from your That's government appear on the National Indigenous Broadcast Election Program? So no questions will be asked and perhaps more importantly, no answers will be scrutinised. There has been another outbreak of violence in the troubled Northern Territory community of Wode, 250 kilometres southwest of Darwin. The unrest started three months ago and has left dozens of homes damaged and 400 people displaced. Northern Territory police say more than 300 people armed with blunt and etched weapons, were involved in fighting at a community oval on Sunday afternoon. A 26-year-old man suffered non-life-threatening injuries and rocks were thrown at police vehicles. Police use capsicum spray to disperse the crowd. Investigations are continuing. Deputy Chief Minister Nicole Manison told AAP the authorities were monitoring the situation and continued to support the displaced people. According to AAP, Wudea is one of the largest Aboriginal communities in the Northern Territory and home to 22 clans and seven language groups. The community is located in the second most disadvantaged region in Australia, according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics. A new learning resource, 27 years in the making, is set to help preserve one of East Arnhem Land's ancient Aboriginal dialects. The word book will help students on remote Elko Island reconnect with the Galpu language. Guy McLean reports for NITV News. Celebrating a new resource to teach an ancient language, the Galpu word book helping students at Shepherdson College to speak, read and understand one of eight Aboriginal languages used in the school. Richard Gandui is a Galpu elder. He told NITV News how important this book was for the community. It's going to help the Galpo clan to remember they belong to that country, we belong to that uh, clan, Galpo. 14 or 15 different clans here in Arnhem Land. The book launch has realised the vision of late Shepherdson College literacy worker Marilyn Ganyanuru Gurawiwi, who started the project 27 years ago. Yinin Durke remembered her mother's hard work and dedication. She had to work longer hours. I told her you should stop working. You should stay home. This is not what I'm doing. I'm not doing this for me. I'm doing this for the generations to come. Shakira Munungur is a proud granddaughter and a teacher herself. She really appreciates the book. I want to say that I'm a very proud granddaughter and as a teacher myself, like, you know, it's so good that we have the resources for the kids. 
The Galpu wordbook features 1,700 entries, each with a picture and short story in language. One woman's vision now a reality thanks to the dedicated work of her family. Niomba Gandangu is an educator as well. She saw from the start the importance of a resource like this. When I was assistant teacher, I was working here. I used to sit with her, talk about this, uh, this project, the word of Kalpo. Do you want your mother language to be as uh, written in this school? And I said, yeah, that's very good. We need to have that word. We need to have that language spoken here. Keeping language and culture strong for future generations. Veragere writer Anita Hees has been announced as a winner of this year's New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards. Taking out the Indigenous Writers' Prize for her book, Bela Yara Dangalan Gudurei, River of Dreams. And the winner this evening is Anita Heiss for Bela. The novel tells the complexity of challenges overcome by mob across the country through the lens of the Viragiri people. After surviving a devastating flood along the Muru Bingi River, a love story on the surface, Bella uses language to explore identity, community and connection to country in the wake of colonization. In her speech after receiving the prize, Anita Hiss says, she was humbled by even being shortlisted. They believed what I believe, and that it is a story for all Australians, and that I want all Australians to understand that wherever you walk on this land, there is a first language, and it's not English. I stand on the shoulders of my very proud elders, and they balance me, and I'm grateful. So, Yinji Marabul Mandangul. The 2022 Archibald Prize was won by a Dungati artist, Black Douglas. The artist and musician was awarded for his portrait of Viragiri artist Carla Dickens, standing in the water of the devastating Lismore Flats. With his win, Douglas becomes the second Aboriginal artist to claim the Archibald Prize in the competition's 101-year history. He said it's a major historic win. Prime Minister Scott Morrison says he could have been more sensitive at times while leading the country. He made that concession during an interview with Channel 9, in which he also admitted his now infamous I don't hold the horse mate comment over the 2019 bushfires was not helpful. On Sunday, Scott Morrison told the Liberal Party campaign lunch his one focus from the outset of the pandemic was to save the country which is something he says his government has done. Journalist Tracy Grimshaw asked whether that claim was an exaggeration. You don't hold a hose, you weren't in your tinny plucking people off rooftops, you weren't doing 16-hour days in PPE on COVID wards, you didn't get enough vaccines soon enough, you didn't get enough rats so that we could finally have a holiday interstate for Christmas and China is set up based in the Solomons. Do you think maybe you slightly over-egged the part about I saved the country? Well, that's, that's quite a long list you've been able to pull together. But let me say this. We've come through this pandemic better than almost any other advanced country in the world. JobKeeper was save the country. That's specifically what I was referring to. And if you don't think it did, Tracy, well, you can, uh, you can have that argument with the 800,000 people who kept a job as a result of that. A new report warns global warming has reached critical levels in key ecosystems, including the West Antarctic glaciers, 
eastern Amazonian rainforest and the world's coral systems. Using real-time data, the authors from the Melbourne-based Breakthrough National Centre for Climate Restoration have found between 1.2 and 1.5 degrees Celsius of the global warming has already been reached in these areas, and that will accelerate the impacts of runaway climate change. The report calls for urgent action to achieve net zero emissions by 2030. Report co-author Jan Dunlop says the climate impacts are happening faster than the five-year process of review conducted by UN scientists and that bolder political leadership is needed to avoid the worst climate impacts. The bottom line of this is that the threat of climate change has been badly underestimated and that is what is now starting to emerge is that because we've not taken action These threats are now emerging and we are very badly prepared to handle them. So we have to take precautionary action to ensure they don't get away from us. Neither the major parties, the Greens or the Teal Independents have a target of net zero emissions by 2030. The coalition has a 26-28% to 28% cut by 2030. Labour has a target of 43%, the Teal Independents have backed a 60% target and the Greens want a 75% cut. And to sports now. In the AFL, Adelaide Indigenous leader Wayne Millera has outlined the difficulty in repairing his relationship with Tail Walker after the star forward served a racism ban in 2021. Miller, who is the crowd's most experienced First Nations player, says Walker's suspension over a racist comment last year was stressful and rebuilding the relationship took time. Walker missed out a six games last August over his remark, which happened when he was watching a state league game. Miller says he's comfortable having him at the club and Walker has apologized for the incident. And to cycling now... Benyam Girmi has won the 10th stage of the Giro d'Italia, becoming the first black African to win a Grand Tour stage. The 22-year-old from Eritrea has already made history in March when he was the first black African to win Belgian Cobalt Classic. Girmi says he has no words for his team, adding that the group started the race well and he's grateful for the historic results. Um, everybody, I mean, they did a super great job. And then, yeah, and then, Pozo was amazing, you know, he just come. He said to me, come in the last 600 meters. Yeah, he did really good, lead out and then amazing. And let's have a look at today's weather. Broom, sunny with the tops of 31. Perth, showers and a storm likely, 22 degrees. Adelaide, possible morning shower and 18 degrees. Melbourne, shower or two and 15 degrees. Hobart showers easing and 12. Albury Wodonga shower or two with the tops of 15. Canberra partly cloudy and 13 degrees. Sydney sunny and 20 degrees. Brisbane today is partly cloudy with 26 degrees. Townsville mostly sunny with the tops of 30. Cairns mostly sunny and 29. Darwin much the same and 34 degrees. Alice Springs today is partly cloudy with the tops of 23. And Torres Strait Islands are sunny with the tops of 30.
listening to NITV Radio. Coming up in the show, we have an interview about a guide for families and communities supporting young Aboriginal people who self-harm. We'll also hear about First Nations rangers taking things in their hands. And there is also a report about climate change and its impact on the reef. But first, here's the Kid Laroi and his song Blessings. The Kid Laroi and his blessings. Now to a new guide supporting young First Nations people who self-harm. It's now available for families and communities. NITV Radio's Bertrand Tungandame spoke to co-author of the guide, Professor Pat Dajan. Professor Pat Dajon is the director of the Center of Best Practice in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Suicide Prevention. Professor Dajon is also project lead and co-author of a new guide for families and communities supporting young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who self-harm. And Professor Dajon has accepted to give us an insight into this new tool. Welcome to NITV Radio, Professor Dajon. My pleasure. It's a real pleasure to be here, Bertrand. Now... Self-harm and suicide are a great concern for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander families and communities with the occurrences happening at much higher rates than in the rest of the community. Yet, till now, culturally appropriate tools and information have been lacking. Absolutely. Look, we know um, uh, Indigenous or Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander suicide is a big issue and I think we're now headed in the right direction in trying to address it. Previously, um, it you know, there was a lot of um, programs that were helicoptered in on communities and they weren't very effective. So we know from the work we've done, the community-based research that we've done is that um, if people and any marginalised group, um, you know, but particularly for Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people, if you're a part of uh, defining the issue and developing the solution, it's much more effective. So our research has shown us that Aboriginal communities needed to be very much involved in figuring out what was the issue and how they, what kind of programs they'd be, um, they'd like to have in place to deal with it. That's a significant change that's only happened in the last few years. You know, I know for some states there's a lot of suicide prevention planning, regional planning that's happened, happening now, and that is very much involving all the communities. This is unprecedented. This little booklet, which is, um, we hope will be very helpful for families on supporting young Aboriginal people who self-harm, this is one of those um, resources that needs to be there for families. So, you know, there should be a whole raft of different projects and services um, at the fingertips for families, but, um, but and they will come. I'm pretty positive that, that, you know, we're seeing a change happen, but we do need to get other resources, you know, whether it's online or, or, or booklets um, that, are, uh, you know, aren't too complicated or academic or full of jargon that are useful for Aboriginal families. Now, you just mentioned that it is important to involve the communities. It's also important to stress that uh, in the development of this new guide, you sought to include uh, Aboriginal youth. 
Uh, look, and certainly, I mean, this was a book that was for mainstream, so it's an adap- adaptation, but it is different, much different. We felt that we couldn't just do it um, in our offices. We needed to go out, and at, so our researchers actually went out to the communities, and we've got some very strong um, community relationships, and Professor Ros Walker led this consultation and, and uh, research to ensure that it was culturally appropriate. We went out to a whole range of different um, communities, to uh, Geraldton, to the Kimberley, to Bunbury and the southwest of Western Australia. And in those workshops, there were not only counsellors or health workers, but young people as well. So they were very much involved in, you know, defining the issues but also saying what's going to be useful. And that's really important. You know, I've been to some meetings about Aboriginal youth and there's no Aboriginal youth there. So whether it's, um, you know, there's this lived experience movement that started, which is absolutely fabulous. And, you know, how can we say what's good for people if that if people who have been the consumers of that particular program or or service aren't sitting at the table. So what I might think would be useful may well not be. So we do need to have young people at the table to tell us what needs to happen for them or else we'll, we'll always be working in the dark, I feel. Yeah, you mentioned earlier, you spoke about helicoptering, which I think is a more appropriate word than what some people call mainstreaming. But things like fostering connection with family and kinship, community, culture, country and identity, these are things that uh, do matter and can heavily help tackle the issues of self-harm. That's where the strength is. Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people have gone through this terrible um, process of colonisation. Our position is that some of those impacts are now being, um, you know, are still happening in our communities. We've had, you know, removal of people from their countries and lands into missions and reserves and and a terrible period of um, surveillance that happened for Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people. Still ongoing racism, exclusion. You know, we have um, systemic racism, which doesn't exclude Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people. Um, That is starting to turn around, but our people need um, to, there needs to be a period of healing and recovery from that. And, um, but um, I think if self-determination is um, a principle that we work by, that will bring that around, that will ensure that that happens and people become empowered and that we acknowledge, you know, we talk about taking strength-based approaches. We need to acknowledge that um, our communities have the solutions, they have the strength and resilience. So a solution will be to to look at what's, you know, the values um, that are happening in communities um, and, um, and certainly the youth came up with those um, solutions as well. You know, they they said things like, you know, so many young people who self-harm feel that no one's listening to them. They said that the solution was to reconnect with communities, with their elders, with their families, and to do things that are um, cultural, you know, cultural activities, go out bush to, to go fishing and find that good person in their family who is their rock and their connection. So, so they um, certainly know what they would like to happen for them. And those things are um, listed in this booklet. So I think it's very valuable.
And we're open to feedback too as we promote it. You know, if people say, oh, you, you, maybe you should have put this other issue in there, we're very open to that as well. But we're, we're proud of it. We did undertake a, a very strong and, and deep community consultation. I think that it is going to be useful. Having said that, it's one of many um, different resources that need to be there for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander families. Yeah, it is said that uh, the guide identifies early warning signs and factors that may influence First Nations people to harm themselves. Can you tell us one or two of uh, these vital signs to look out for? In the guide, there is a um, section on early signs and symptoms to look out for. And there it says young people may show emotional behavioural or physical symptoms of self-harm. They might be acting out of school. They might be being angry all the time or being withdrawn from their friends and their families, being um, protective of their bags, blaming themselves for problems, you know, covering their arms and legs. So this is more about self-harm, wearing long sleeves or pants to cover up, you know, any cuts or bruises they might have. They might have low mood or depression, a lack of interest in life, and they might be more secretive than usual. And they'll be careful about not swimming or changing clothes around others so their wounds aren't exposed. They might be saying things like, you know, that they are a failure, they're worthless, useless, hopeless and feeling no good. And there'll be unexplained um, bruises and burns on, on their bodies. So they're the, you know, obvious things to look out for. And um, and then we say, you know, um, there's, there's a um, section on why they do it. But um, there's also a section on, you know, how to start the conversation, to start talking to them. You know, if they say, for instance, I haven't got anyone who I feel I can trust to hold me, you might say things like, I'm your mum, dad, family, and we love you and we do care about you. Let's find someone you can trust together. So there's there's a lot of tips and example conversations. So it's, it's useful in that regard. And then there is a section on suicide. What if there's been talk about suicide? Because that, that we're separating the two issues, self-harm and suicide. You know, how to have a frank conversation about that with that young people as well. But um, so very important. And there's case studies in here to, you know, to um, it's, you know, people sometimes get embarrassed or they, they feel that they, you know, these issues are happening for everyone. So we need to keep conversations happening and ensure that we have spaces, safe spaces, where we can talk to each other about what's happening for our families and communities. But now looking from another perspective, families and loved ones can also be impacted by someone self-harming. Is this addressed in the guide as well? How can one cope in a situation where a loved one or a close relative or a family member is self-harming? We probably haven't put as much self-care in um, as we could have because that's a very good point. You know, for everyone who's around, it's a... if someone is vulnerable and they are doing self-harming activities, it's just, it's very frightening and, and you're not sure what to do or how to do it, you know, whether you're doing the right thing or whether it's going to cause more problems. Being frank that it's done with love and care is is okay. You know, if you're doing it for love, with love and care and empathy, it is okay. But um, we probably didn't talk about what 
people themselves need to um, do and self-care that they need to do for themselves as well because, you know, we, it, it's not like we're not emotionally connected and distressed ourselves when these things happen in our, our family. But we do have a section on healing as a family and about staying together and, um, uh, you know, that brothers and sisters may feel angry that and think self-harming, the person who's self-harming is selfish and causing distress. But to, to how to deal with that... Um, so I think to you know that's where we do go into the impacts on other members of the family, but the one who takes responsibility, and there'll be one in every family and every community. There will be the stand-up people who who take responsibility and look after everyone else. They need to also look after themselves. They are the um, key people of families and communities, and and um, we need them there. So they, you know, we need to consider what we do to keep them strong. How can one access this guide and uh, in what format is it being delivered? Look, there is a link. This is a joint project between Origin and the Centre for Best Practice in Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Suicide Prevention at UWA. We'll also be sending it to the National Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisations and ask them to put them this uh, resource onto their websites as well. So you can access it and download it but we will also have hard copies. I know that for some people it might be easier to get a hard copy. So if you do contact the Centre for Best Practice in Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Suicide Prevention at the University of Western Australia, we will send you um, a hard copy. Professor Pat Dajon, Director of the Centre for Best Practice in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Suicide Prevention. It's been a pleasure talking to you and learning more about the newly launched guide for families and communities supporting young Aboriginal people who self-harm. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today, Professor Dajon. My pleasure. Thank you. That was Professor Pat Dajon talking to NITV Radio's Bertrand Tungandame. You're listening to NITV Radio. On Saturday, the winner of Eurovision was announced. The Ukrainian band Kalush Orchestra won. But let's go back in time when an indigenous singer represented Australia. You probably remember as Isaiah Firebrace when he took the stage at Eurovision in 2017 with the song Don't Come Easy. He came ninth, which is one of Australia's best results. The Yota Yota and Gundij Maraman was only 17 years old at the time. So let's travel back in time. Here's Don't Come Easy by Isaiah Firebrace. I can tell by your eyes you want more than this. But can we be much more beyond these shades? Oh. Isaiah Firebrace and Don't Come Easy. Let's now talk about climate change and the impacts of it. For the Durrambal people, it is an urgent issue, as the sea country at the Great Barrier Reef is the heart of their cultural life. After almost two decades of negotiation, they are taking a greater role in its cultural management and protection. Tanisha Stanton reports from beautiful sea country in Queensland for NITV's flagship program, The Point. This sea country off Queensland's Capricorn coast is sacred to the Durrambal people. If he could, traditional custodian Malcolm Mann would spend every minute here. 
sea country is everything combined, sky, water, it means more than just sort of a postcard, it means it's, it means your identity, it's your place, your belonging. And, uh, and with that comes responsibility. But he worries for the future of his sea country, which includes parts of the World Heritage listed Great Barrier Reef. Malcolm Mann, Darumbal traditional custodian, takes us on a boat ride on a beautiful blue sea, talking about the impacts climate change has on the area. Impacts of climate change are everywhere. Where you would see a lot of um, turtle and dugong around in a particular area that um, are no longer there. We've even seen seals, seals up in our country. Albatross walking down the main street of Yapoon. Things are either out a little bit of sync with each other. This year, the United Nations will consider whether the Great Barrier Reef should be described as in danger because of the escalating impacts of climate change. But Malcolm says traditional custodians have known this for a long time. Like the knowledge, you spend time with some of them old people um, out on country that have that knowledge and they'll blow Western scientists out of the park. We already know that our country is sick. We've known that for a very long time. Daramba elder Rodney William Mann is showing photographs of the reef. Some of them are old, showing corals and their beauty. That's me walking across the creek. Uncle Bill Mann has also seen the devastating change working for years as a ranger on country. Within the last 20 years, I'd reckon, all of it, everything started to go downhill. The hot temperatures from the climate change, and uh, that knocks a lot of seagrass, also the coral. You get that coral bleaching. I've seen that happen a few times with that coral bleaching. And yeah, just everything turns white, you know, loses all its colour. He says it's vital that decisions around what happens on sea country are made by the Durumbal people. They are the real conservationists. Yeah, First Nations people. They go, and that goes back thousands of years. Yeah, they are the original conservationists. I mean, none of that ever happened before, before the, you know, the uh, uh, white pillar came. Things are moving that way. The Durumbal people are celebrating the signing of a major agreement with authorities called Tamra on the traditional use of the marine resources for fishing and hunting. It means for the next 15 years, the Durumbal people will be taking a bigger role in the management of the marine area. Durumbal elder Sally Vivi spoke at the ceremony. Now we have our boundaries, we have protocols, we have structures in place that say you cannot come onto our country and fish illegally. We don't care who you are, but you will answer for that. Durumbal elder auntie Sally Vivi says the deal is a major milestone towards protecting country, 18 years in the making. It's been an emotional, you know, an emotional journey that we've been through, but there was always a goal at the end. And it was something that I would, I always wanted to see happen. We want to fish sustainably so that our stocks are, are kept so that we keep our stocks and we can go out and get the fish when it's in season. If you don't have a tummer in place, people will just go out and do whatever they want to do. 
It will be the largest agreement of its type for the Great Barrier Reef, covering more than 36,000 square kilometres, while it will pave the way for a whole range of other opportunities. John Tapim from the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority spoke to NITV, explaining the work rangers do. The driver behind it is Mop wanted to look after their sea country, wanted to instill, protect and, and continue to practice their laws and customs through their agreements their way. We support um, ranger groups to get out on country to monitor seagrass, water quality, mangrove watch, uh, turtle and dugong tagging. Uh, there's a whole range of things and, and you know, it, it really is up to the traditional owners and what they want to do with their agreements and, and every single one is different. You can't respect country if you don't know country. The existing Durrambul Rangers are looking forward to caring for sea country as well as the land. Isaiah Jacobson is a Durrambul Ranger. He taps on his heart as he talks about his country. There's like no words to really explain what it means. It's like you feel it here and that's it. Okay, you just when you look around you can feel it in your heart. You can hear the wind, the trees, animals, it's all talking to you, saying something to you. You just got to stand there and listen. Seth Bashko is also a Darambala ranger. That's everything as well, being around the brothers, the cousins, you know, the family. This, you know, inspires us all to be, you know, ourselves. Another Darambala ranger, Shay Hayden, explained why it is important to look after country. It heals us and we heal country and without country, there's no us, you know. Ultimately, it's about protecting the sea country for future generations of Durrambul people. Back on the boat on the beautiful sea, Malcolm Mann, Durrambul traditional custodian, explains why it is so important to have the traditional custodians look after country. It needs to happen now because um, whether people like it or not, uh, country's actually sick. Traditional custodians have been here for a very long time. We're the best uh, um, advisors around the condition of country. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. So what is happening with the Great Barrier Reef? Well, it has suffered through another mass coral bleaching event, affecting nine out of ten reefs in the famous landmark. In a newly released government report, the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority also confirmed is the fourth mass bleaching event to occur in seven years, and the first during La Nina weather pattern. Amelia then reports for SBS News. The waters may be calm over the Great Barrier Reef, but just underneath the surface, its unique coral is in distress and has been for months as it suffered through another mass bleaching event. That's according to a new report out by the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority. Chief Scientist Dr David Wackenfeld says the evidence is damning. I think it's safe to say that the fingerprints of impact of climate change on the Great Barrier Reef are extremely clear. Scientists initially raised the alarm in December when ocean temperatures over the reef hit a record high. Three distinct heatwaves through summer meant by late March, when aerial surveys were conducted, the damage was clear. Of the more than 700 reefs surveyed, 91% of them showed some bleaching. 
Dr Wackenfeld says it's the latest in a string of major environmental events on the reef. Certainly the fact that we are, have seen four of them in seven years is, I think, just a reflection of the fact that the planet is now about 1.2 degrees warmer than it was before the Industrial Revolution. Bleaching occurs when coral becomes stressed from above average water temperatures. Although much of the coral will survive, the fact this event happened under La Nina conditions, which are typically cooler, is sparking even greater concern. For the first time, despite the fact that this is uh, La Nina conditions over the last summer, we have seen a mass coral bleaching event. And again, this just concentrates our attention on the fact that the planet is warming and marine heat waves are more common than they once were. A map published with the report also detailed how the most severe and extreme bleaching occurred between Cape Tribulation and the Sundays, the region most visited by tourists. The Climate Council's research director, Dr Simon Bradshaw, says without intervention, the iconic destination is at risk. It's clear that giving our reef a fighting chance and all the industries and jobs that depend on it absolutely depends on much stronger action to tackle the number one threat to the Great Barrier Reef, which is climate change. The first recorded coral bleaching event occurred in 1998. Since then, there have been five more, four of which occurred since 2016. Dr Bradshaw says the outlook isn't promising. And the science suggests that if we continue to let things rip, then we could see these bleaching events occurring every year after 2044. In other words, we'd effectively lose the Great Barrier Reef and pretty much all tropical coral reefs worldwide. He says with the federal election looming, the plight of the reef highlights the need to take action to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. There's a huge amount at stake here, and it's very clear that a vast majority of Australians understand this risk and expect whoever forms governments to do far more to ensure the reef is protected. Just last week, the organisations responsible for the report denied its release was being deliberately delayed until after the election because of political interference. It was suddenly released without warning last night. As for the reef itself, Dr Wackenfeld says it will be another 12 months before long-term damage can be assessed. The key question at the end of every mass bleaching event is how much coral survives and how much dies. That is a question that is still unfolding now out on the Great Barrier Reef. There are still bleached corals out there and they may recover and survive, they may die. It's hoped the reefs have some time now during the colder months to recover before another summer rolls around. You're listening to NITV Radio and let me take you to the red carpet now, quite literally. The premiere of Leah Parcel's new film, The Drover's Wife, The Legend of Molly Johnston. NITV's Doug Smith sat down with an actor who seems to be everywhere now, Rob Collins. He's starring in the film, in television dramas, RFDS, Clever Man and Total Control. And he has even been touted as a possible future James Bond. Kill swiftly. No suffering. I love this film and I mean, out of all the things that I've done, um, it feels like a role and a project that I'm really connected to in my heart. You know, Yarraka, Yarraka restores dignity to Aboriginal men. You know, his character uh, is a father, he's an uncle, you know, he's a leader, he's an elder. And I think, you know, we, um, we've gone through a time recently where 
we haven't seen Aboriginal men in the best light. So this yataka really gives the Aboriginal man some dignity. That's what I loved about the role. My crime misses. Existing whilst black. Leah Purcell has described this as her gift to Australians and it's about truth-telling. How do you see it? I love that Leah has taken a seminal work from one of our most revered poets of the colonial era, Henry Lawson. Like, he is folklore in Australia and injected an Indigenous voice into it. When you look at our history, when you look at our past, the one thing that is missing is an Aboriginal voice. I think Henry Lawson would be really proud of this film and I think he'd really, really love it. You've worked with Leah on other projects uh, like Clever Man, but what was it like working on this one, which is so close to her? I remember her being taking me under her wing during Clever Man. I was still sort of fresh in my career then. You're the one that named me Waru. I didn't choose it. You can choose how you behave. So she's been that sort of guiding force in my career if I look back on it. And out of all the people that I've worked with, Leah is someone, and I've been lucky enough to work with a lot of great people, but she seems more than a peer or a director to me. You know, I, I mean, she's a friend and I trust her implicitly. You've been able to play such a diverse range of roles and so many uh, genres from TV, uh, political dramas, action, zombie films. Um, how important is that representation? Well, I guess in the same way that Yarika as a character gives dignity back to Aboriginal men, the role itself, um, a leading role in a great production is, I think, what we're trying to achieve. We're, we're trying to achieve that as the, uh, the norm, not just the exception. You know, there is a great wealth of Indigenous talent that I've had the great fortune of rubbing shoulders with in this country. And I think this films like this and experiences like this are the tip of the, tip of the iceberg. A lot of people that have been doing this a lot longer than I have have been fighting long and hard to put me in a position in 2022 where I'm at this gala event, you know. So, you know, I pay my respects to those people that have come before, but I think we've hopefully uh, not seen the end of it and hopefully this is just the beginning. You're also working with Hollywood superstar Mark Wahlberg on the upcoming film Arthur the King. How exciting is that? Oh, working with Mark Wahlberg um, at the start of last year was incredibly exciting and it was my first kind of foray into the big Hollywood machine. It was a wonderful experience and um, ho hopefully we, we're sending more black faces uh, abroad to do big Hollywood things, you know. So it's, yeah, it was a lot of fun and uh, I hope it's the start of, you know, another journey, perhaps overseas. You've also got a very strong vote of confidence from actor Sam Neill about being possibly the next James Bond. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on that? To put this in context, I woke up uh, in my bed a couple of days ago. Um, I stepped out of my bed, my foot hit the ground, and I sprained my Achilles tendon. So um, that was just getting out of bed. So I don't think I'm going to be playing James Bond <laughs> anytime soon, unless, you know, he doesn't jump over buildings or run very fast. You were a good man. Come with me. Did you believe her? Molly Johnson. Her husband waving his hand at seeing the children. Somehow it didn't ring true. 
That was actor Rob Collins talking to NITV The Point's Doug Smith. You can catch up with all the episodes of The Point, including yesterday's election special on SBS On Demand. And now here's Thelma Plum and Don't Let a Good Girl Down. And the song takes us to the end of the show today. You are listening to NITV Radio and my name is Sharka Pechova. And it was my great pleasure being your host today. Have a nice rest of the week and we will be back on Friday. It's kind of icky The depths that you go To bring a good girl To bring a good girl down Want to hear more stories like this? Listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from.